You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 25th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Yo. And Evan Bernstein. Morshi, morshi. That's to all our Japanese listeners out there. Mushi, mushi. How you doing, guys? How's everybody? Good. Good. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving. Yes, tomorrow is Thanksgiving from our yes, point of view. Two days ago was Thanksgiving. That's right. <laughs> That's it's right. It's, it's tomorrow for, for us, it's today for Rebecca, and it's two days ago for everyone listening to this podcast. And three days ago for Rebecca. <laughs> Not only are we an international podcast now, but we're also, tra- <laughs> we're also trans-dimensional. Trans-temporal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm thankful for our ability to travel through time. It's forward and at one speed, but yes, we can travel through time. <laughs> Thank you, Einstein. What's yes, the status today. of Thanksgiving in England? What do they eat? How does it work over there? <laughs> they have bangers and mash. Well, it's complex. <laughs> they eat whatever they happen to have planned to eat. Don't we all? For Thursday night. But I, however, will be having a delicious Thanksgiving meal with about a dozen of my favorite British people. And I will teach them all of our customs, all of our American customs. Like Rebecca, did you stop going around telling people, I'm British? <laughs> well, yeah, that was just for Halloween. Oh, that was just one day American only? Now. Oh, I thought well, yeah, you were just, just doing well, that. Just for one night, <laughs> I was, oh, I'm British. But now, now that it's not Halloween, I'm going around as American mm-hmm. again and going like, yee-haw. <laughs> Yippee-yay-yo, kaye, Rebecca, Evan, do you uh, have a day of the, of the in skepticism thing? Or oh, you suck. oh, yeah, there kind of is a day. Wait, 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 wait. What? I want to try this. Rebe- right, Rebecca, ahead. can you put Sid on? Real, could you put Sid on real quick and have him say, "I'm American" with an American accent? <laughs> Poor Sid. Hello. Hey, Sid. Sid, how are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I can only hear you out of my left ear, though, for some reason. Oh. Sid, you know, you know how Rebecca makes fun of you all the time because you're British? Um, I think it's because I married her, so she's allowed to make fun <laughs> of me all the time. What's our excuse? I want you right now to make fun of her English accent. No, her American accent. Talk, her American accent. There's no way I can take any fun of that accent because it's so awful. Oh, yeah. well, it, that's It brings point. tears to my eyes like English mustard does to, to Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you out of your wise guys? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Boy, we sound that goofy. <laughs> well, I, I, I grew up watching Tom and Jerry cartoons. What do you expect? Thanks, Sid. All right, okay. Sid. <laughs> I shall exit. Catch you later, guys. See you later, brother. All right, you happy? Yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> Before we get off this topic, Rebecca, you must invent... A new and really bizarre Thanksgiving tradition that you could tell your friends. Uh, yeah, this yes, is how we do no, it every year. That's exactly what I was getting to, Excellent. actually. Excellent. Um, so if you if you have any suggestions, I will gladly incorporate them. I do. Instead of shaking meal. hands, you shake elbows. So you put your elbow out. <laughs> okay. You touch elbows. Because that's what the pilgrims did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so you, the, you have to come time. up with yeah, the really bizarre fake Thanksgiving traditions and then just you know, always back it up by saying, because that's what the, the pilgrims did. Because that's what the pilgrims yeah. did, yeah. Okay, I'll do it. This day in skepticism? Right, this day, November 25, 1922, archaeologist Howard Carter opened the first of two doorways to the tomb of King Tutankhamun. 
Oh, cool. Very nice. And, Very nice. and then he promptly died of the curse, right? That's yeah. right. <laughs> promptly the years later. And then Monty Hall offered him a third door and told him there was a goat behind one of them. Change doors, change doors. <laughs> That's right. If you change your doors, you're probably... And, and we have to point out that yesterday, again, to, to us, it was uh, the 150th anniversary of the yes. first printing of The Origin of the Species by Charles Darwin. A book oh, of some yeah. note. A seminal work. I haven't heard anyone uh, talk about Ray Comfort and uh, his shenanigans uh, and everything. That's I love sneaky him. mofo. Love he ended up uh, going to campuses a day early. And for those who who don't know about what was happening, he uh, Ray Comfort added his own introduction to Origin of Species and then gave out free copies of it on uh, college campuses across the states. And yeah, he he told everybody he was going to do it last Thursday, but then um, a lot of groups were organizing to go out and protest, and so he ended up rushing things and going out on Wednesday and handing them out. Uh, but there's still like. I, I'm pretty sure they weren't very successful. I, I've seen some uh, fantastic clips online. There, there's a clip of um, Kirk Cameron yes. on the U- UCLA campus just getting owned by yeah. uh, a, a group of students who were just peppering him with questions about evolution. Yeah, and the, the intro was basically just rehashed old debunked creationist arguments. But nevertheless, Eugenie Scott did a nice takedown of it point by point on don'tdisdarwin.com. So you can go there if you if you want to read what was actually oh, in that intro cool. and, and the and the reasons why it's dumb. Also, the, a recently a rare first edition of the Origin of Species was discovered in wow. a guest bathroom in southern England. I guess that's the kind of thing that people in they England they call it a loo. Here. A loo, yeah, the guest loo in some <laughs> southern England. <laughs> really, what's that worth? Projected to to fetch about. Sixty thousand pounds or a hundred thousand dollars oh. at auction. Awesome! Whoa. So if you got any loose change hanging around, you might want to pick that up. Be nice. We have some interesting news items this week. The first one is that finally, the long-awaited Large Hadron Collider finally destroyed the world. Bobby, Yay. tell us about that. Yay! Not much else to say since we're. Well, ghosts, I guess. But what a what a roller coaster ride for the LHC! Uh, after 14 years and many billions of dollars, it really seems to be on its way uh, to some tremendously high energy collisions. And again, I've been saying that for a couple of years now, so I'm not going to make any predictions. But this past November 20th, it finally came back online since last year when it when it sent a beam of protons around its 27 kilometer underground supercooled superconducting ring. Um, three days later, which I believe was like yesterday for us, two beams were sent in opposite directions, colliding at energies approaching 450 GeV, which is a giga or a billion electron volts. So this is the this is the work that the LHC is designed to do. But to get to this point, it's it's been a pretty long and tortuous, and at times pretty silly road that it's taken. Remember last year, people were filing lawsuits against CERN, claiming that. The high-energy collisions would create black holes, and it would swallow the Earth. Um, I actually found a really cool YouTube video of a black hole swallowing the Earth. It was very interesting, although it happened too fast. I think it would be a, a rather slow affair. So this black hole was supposed to swallow the Earth, like like Vulcan in the new, uh, like the planet Vulcan in the new Star Trek movie. Yeah, but that's not how it would happen because that came from the oh, yeah. inside. That was from the core of Vulcan. Yeah, but once you make a black hole, it sinks right to the middle yeah. of the Earth. Right, Come on, right, that's, right. that's the claim anyway. Yeah, but 
even more powerful collisions occur in nature all the time, and there's no black holes being created all over the place. Of course, that was obviously kind of silly. And then last year, nine days after after booting up uh, and ramping up to maximum energy, they experienced what's called the magnetic quench, which is an abnormal termination of the of the magnetic operation, and that melted uh, the connections between two giant magnets and explosively released liquid helium. Not a good day for the LHC. Um, and then that's why we've had this long, long delay. It's been uh, unbelievable how long it's taken. Now, finally, they got it going. But then um, this year, if you remember, we talked about this a bit. Two scientists claimed that, that they had math that proved that nature will ripple backward through time to stop the LHC. They sent a bird with a bagel. Right. And you're right. That is related to that because uh, what they claimed was that God – you know that nature was going to ripple backward in time and, and prevent the, the, uh, the Higgs boson from being discovered, some bosonic catastrophe. And then, Rebecca, you're right, soon after that, I'm not sure how I soon, was but week. was it weeks or days, um, part of the accelerator actually overheated because a bird dropped a piece of bread onto an electrical substation. And uh, so that you know that those, that those scientists were saying, see, I told you this would happen. You know, how bizarre was that, a bird dropping a piece of bread? Bagel bird to, will mess smite you. you. Right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, Bob, how crickety is that machine? If a freaking piece of bread hits it's, it, and it's toast. well, you know, it's not crickety. <laughs> Jay, it's a precise scientific instrument, right? And this, <laughs> and that was clearly an extremely rare thing. You know, that that was just a, a one in a million, really. But hey, that's. <laughs> I don't want to give any more credence to what those guys were saying. But back to reality. So by Christmas, by Christmas this year, the uh, scientists hope to have the LHC cranked up to twice the power, close to as one, uh, one TeV or a trillion electron volts. Yeah, I hear they're going to crank it up to 11. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 11. <laughs> don't, don't even look at it. But actually, the I think the uh, some some news sites were saying that they're going to crank it up by the end of this year to two two uh, two TeV, which is pretty high, and that's actually higher than the Tevatron, which is now the big the second biggest uh, accelerator. And then ultimately, I think their maximum is seven uh, TeV uh, trillion electron volts. I think that's as high as it's going to go. Although they, I'm sure they could probably tweak it to go a little bit higher, and and it's around that range probably where you're going to see a lot of the interesting stuff going on. So good luck, LHC. And hopefully uh, we'll be toasting you in a few months, right. months, and not laughing. Right, but it's sure working. They're crashing stuff into stuff. Yep. Yeah. And they did, now, yeah, right. They just now it's just a matter of doing actual of cranking, cranking yeah. it up, and it's going to take a while. I'm not sure why it takes so long to get it up to uh, crazy energies. But I guess I got to test it out each stage of the way, make sure everything's working. Yeah, and- it's such a it's a, the most complicated scientific instrument ever created. So yeah, I'm sure there's. There's so many things that I'm not so clueless about that they got to check and right. double check and triple check. And plus, they don't want to get egg on their faces yet again, right? So I'm sure they're being so anal about this. Yeah, they're killing all the birds around, around the area. Just to be <laughs> right. Safe. Yeah, right. Bagels have been The next uh, news item is very interesting, the way uh, this played out. Wow. Frustrating, of course, as, as many of the things that we discuss are. This is Coma Man, right? A man who has been in a coma for 23 years, a 46-year-old Belgian man named Ram Hoban, uh, who was in a car accident at the age of 23 and has been apparently in a persistent vegetative state for 23 years. However, over the last few days, there has been multiple news stories recounting how uh, Mr. Hoban was found to actually be in a locked-in state, that he was conscious the whole time. 
And this was discovered by a neurologist and researcher on disorders of consciousness called Stephen Larez. So that in and of itself is a, is a very interesting story. But there was another wrinkle to this that really makes this two stories in one. As the news reports started to come out, we were shown video of how Mr. Hoban was communicating and showing that he was conscious. And when you look at the video, it's uh, a woman holding his hand. He's in, you know, in, curled up in a wheelchair, as you'd imagine, somebody who is mostly paralyzed for many, many years. Uh, his hand was, in fact, in, in a plastic brace. And she was moving his hand around a letter board, to, like a computer screen with letters on it to At type ultra out high the speed. messages. Uh -oh. Yeah, and Very proficiently. Uh -huh. and it was clearly using... Um, a technique known as facilitated communication, where she says that she was just interpreting his subtle intentions and movements, and that he was controlling where which letters were pressed, and she was just facilitating moving his hand around. I have to say, when I first heard the story, I didn't bother watching the video, and then I saw Randy criticizing uh, this for being facilitated communication over on his blog uh, at randy.org. And so I thought... yeah. Really, that kind of seems like a, I don't know, it seems like a cheap shot. I don't, I, I doubt it's actually that bad. And then I looked at the video. It's like, oh my God, the, the woman is taking this, this man who is clearly really impaired, moving his, his finger across the keyboard so quickly that even if I, I just tried picturing myself, like let's say someone was holding my hand and just going by, you know, where I was pointing them to they would never be able to move that quickly across a keyboard. And I'm pretty sure I'm right. less impaired than this man. Pretty sure. Not positive. But there's just no way. There's absolutely no way. There's no way. And then, um, so the, this is a complicated case. I'm going to go over some of the complexities in a moment. But the one thing I'm absolutely certain about is that what we're seeing on those videos is total fraud. And that 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 uh, that man, Mr. Hoban, is not communicating with that technique. That is the woman, the facilitator, doing the communicating. There's no question about that. And in fact, there's an, a later video yes. where you can see he's has his eyes closed. Oh. You can't even determine if the guy's awake. That's just the icing on the cake. Yeah. Right so that there. one, if there was any sliver of a doubt, which there really wasn't, but I mean, if you, for somebody who's not familiar with FC, they might say, "Well, how do you know he can't do it?" But then this video, where he's not even looking at the keyboard, his eyes are closed. The the facilitator is intently looking at the keyboard and moving the hand around. There's no way he's directing her. It's just it's really just flat out impossible. So that much we can say for certain. But now let's go back and try to reconstruct this case because there's different ways you can make sense of this. First, for a little bit of background, uh, Dr. Larez is a legitimate researcher. He, he is a neurologist, a member of the American Academy of Neurology. You know, he's highly published. I read a lot of his papers. I've actually written about them in the past. Perfectly legitimate research. This guy's a straight-up neuro, neuro researcher. Um, he, his point is that there are many patients who we think are in a persistent vegetative state who actually may be in a minimally conscious state, right? That's the, the, the research point that he has been trying to make. And he thinks now that, that Ram Hoban puts a face on this campaign that he has been engaged in. Now, the, the difference between a persistent vegetative state and a minimally conscious state is this. PVS, or persistent vegetative state, is someone who is, I mean, the, there's still brain activity. They are not brain dead. I hear that term thrown around a lot. In fact, there was a New Scientist article where they incorrectly used the term 
brain death. Uh, brain dead is you're dead. There's no brain or brainstem activity. You are legally dead. Uh, if you can do anything, if there's a flicker of even a reflex, you're not dead, right? You're not brain dead. PVS means that the basic functioning of your brain is still there. Your brain stem is still functioning to some degree. And, there, and there's some brain activity, but it's not enough to generate consciousness. You can still go through sleep-wake cycles. You can uh, move your eyes, open your mouth, but you're not in any way interacting with the environment or acknowledging anything that's happening in the environment. A minimally conscious state is just barely over that line into consciousness where, where you're able to interact to some degree. So obviously, the, the difference between a minimally conscious state and a persistent vegetative state in many patients may be that there's really subtle signs of consciousness in somebody who cannot communicate. If you can communicate in any way, then you're beyond even minimally conscious. So... Yeah, it makes absolute sense that as our technology gets better and as we develop better techniques, we're, we're being able to detect more and more subtle signs of consciousness and re-diagnosing people at, who were previously thought to be PVS as minimally conscious state. And Lorez has a legitimate point that if you use a standardized exam that's designed to distinguish between those two things, you pick up more people than if you just rely upon other measures or other exams that really aren't designed to optimize the ability to detect the minimally conscious state. That's the campaign that he's on. He's also using some imaging, PET scan and functional MRI scan, to look for evidence of brain activity in people for whom clinically we can't detect any signs of consciousness. So we may be able to detect even further some people who are have some minimal consciousness, even if we can't detect it clinically, by seeing brain activity on MRI scan. I think we talked about the case, I know I blogged about it, but I, I think we talked about it on the show, about the, they did an fMRI study on a woman who was thought to be persistent vegetative. They asked her to imagine herself playing mm. tennis and imagine herself walking through her home. And that produced different uh, patterns of activity on functional MRI scanning. And then later, they were able to reproduce it. So her thought pattern differed based upon what she was asked to do. That's conscious interaction with the environment. I think we should also know at this point, though, that just a, a few months ago, uh, researchers found brain activity in a dead fish using an fMRI machine. So, well, yeah. So that, that gets what? to the point that functional MRI scanning is a tricky technology, and if you don't do it right, you can get false data. You can get false images. And they did that as a stunt to prove that point. Look, we can ask this dead salmon a question, and we, get, and we could get an fMRI signal out of its brain. What the hell were they getting? There was it was an artifact. The whole point of that was to say, like, listen, you can't believe, and I think maybe you know, just to pick a representative figure, like half of the fMRI studies out there are probably worthless. You have to really be careful about how you interpret it. And, and yeah, I think it needs to be you know, really reproducible before we hang our hat on it. So I, I would say there's preliminary evidence that maybe these techniques can indicate um, subtle forms of conscious activity in the brains of people who appear clinically to be in a persistent vegetative state. That I'm still not totally convinced, and I'm not convinced that LaRay's has, that his position has been totally uh, established. I think he has some very interesting data in, in, towards that end, but I think this is still a bit of an open question. I also want, I need to point out a couple other things. This doesn't mean that everyone in a PVS might be actually conscious. Most people who are in a persistent vegetative state have so much demonstrable brain damage, like Terry Schiavo, that they can't possibly be conscious. 
Yeah, her brain on autopsy was uh, this shriveled little thing. It was, yeah. it was half the weight of, of a normal yeah. brain, her size. So she had lost half of her brain matter, mass. And even LeRae's uh, acknowledges this is a case like this where somebody's actually fully conscious would be very rare. And that most patients in a PVS have, are beyond, you know, uh, really any significant hope. So this is not to give false hope to every family member out there who has somebody in a coma, basically. Steve, I have a couple of questions. All right, so when I first read the article about this a few days ago, there was quite a bit of comments made by the guy that was in the yes. coma. So all of that, all is, that BS. is BS. I don't believe a single word of any quote right. attributed to that guy because it was all through facilitated communication. And the thing is, it would be so easy to control for that. Just you know, have his facilitator use a facilitator that say doesn't speak. Uh, what 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 is he? Where is he from? He, well, he speaks English and Flemish. Right. So, yeah, that, have, have a they have an out. that speaks neither of those. Yeah, well, the, the trick no, is that the, that the facilitator claims that she, it took her months of practice right. to, to learn how to do this. So you can't just have somebody come oh, in boy. and do it. Just set up a blind, you know, yeah, where, right. where he can see something that she can't test that. That it, needs to be so done. easy. That, but yes. LeRae's claims oh, yeah. that he, they did do that test where they sent the facilitator out of the room. He showed the patient an object, like his keys. Then she came back in, and, he, and the patient typed out keys. But we don't know how carefully controlled that was. I think he just got snookered, to be honest yeah. with you. And, and, what we, we need, and he, I actually have had some email exchanges with Dr. LeRae's, trying to get his... Really? Yeah, because I can't trust anything that's from secondhand media reports. The media's been so full of fail on this issue. It's, it's, I can't trust anything that I'm reading. Videos are video, right? That's, some, that's different, but... Um, the reporters have been terrible. So I contacted him directly. This poor guy, I, I feel sorry for him to a degree, although the, the, as time goes on, he's going to be his own enemy, and then he, he's really not going to have any excuses anymore. He, I, he's a legitimate researcher who's getting caught up in a controversy over a pseudoscience I don't think he's aware of. I don't think he's aware of the whole facilitated communication thing. And when I asked him about this, he said, that's a distraction. That's not the issue. The issue is the difference between persistent vegetative state and minimally <laughs> conscious state. It's my research. That's what this is all about. Well, not, tell them to read the news. That's not what they're focusing on. So that's what I told them. I said, that, that I understand your position, but the media is now obsessing over the facilitated communication issue, which is totally bogus, and that's going to overwhelm this case. And it's going, it, even if there's legitimacy to this case, which we still have to talk about a little bit more, it's going to taint it, and it might even taint your reputation. So you've got to get on the ball with this. Ooh, and he yeah. hasn't responded to me yet. You know, that, was, that was many hours ago when he hasn't responded to me yet. I, so I'll give you an update you know, if there's any further back and forth. I also invited him on the show, but you know, he's in Belgium. I don't know what the time difference is. Uh, um, we'll, well, we'll it's maybe about the same as it is for me. Yeah, well, may, we, may, <laughs> we may be able to right. work that out. I mean, I hope I can get, get through to him that, you know, as I – discussed with some of my colleagues, there's a media shitstorm heading his way, and he has no idea. And this is, this is going to be right. one of those cases where an innocent reporter, an innocent researcher is going to get overwhelmed by you know, irresponsible media, and in this case, a pseudoscience that's just going to bite him in the behind. And he can't ignore Steve, it. You better get his... You better get his chops up. I'm that. working on it. I'm working on it. But the guy, the, the guy's just, I think, trying to duck and hide from that issue and try to refocus. Yeah, but, but he, he can't. can't. Right. He absolutely yeah. can't. He doesn't realize. There's one more. I'm not done actually describing the background for this case. So there's, there's, well, there's one more it, condition that's called locked in. Locked mm. in state means that you're, you're fully conscious, but you're just paralyzed. 
I've actually had patients with this condition. It's horrible. It's terrifying. Not good. Yeah, if you can have, like, for example, a stroke in your brainstem, and you could be paralyzed literally from the eyes down. So like you can the guy all you the can do diving bell and the butterfly. Exactly, exactly. You can move your eyes, and that's it. Bob. Yeah. What's my rule with you? What's my rule? Kill Stab you. you in the head if that happens to you? <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. He's got a knife waiting and ready to Not go. me, man. I'm, I'm going to have a hit movie after it happens to me, just like the diving bell, the butterfly guy. I think yeah, things are only going to get better. Hey, Rebecca, I'll facilitate for you, uh, and I'll write okay. your book, okay? <laughs> Thanks, Steve. <laughs> People are going to be like, this is awful dry. I don't know. The claim is, is actually <laughs> that, 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 he is locked that, in. that he's locked in, that he's not even in a minimally conscious state that he's actually locked in and he's fully conscious for the last 23 years. So and now, of course, the facilitator is, is coming out with statements like, oh, I was screaming inside my head, but there was nothing to hear, and I was just retreating inside my dreams, and now I'm so happy to be able to talk to the world and my family. The thing is, when, when, you, when you, you know, of course, the, the FC is totally bogus. When you, you, you look back over the statements that are attributed to, to Ram Hoban, it sounds like a pretty simplistic notion about something, about what somebody would imagine is going on inside his head. But it doesn't have that ring of of, uh, of veracity to it, or of you know you would expect that Hoban would have an, a, a some kind of surprising insights to give us if he really were locked in for twenty three years and nobody knew it. Instead, Steve, we're getting pretty almost childish, banal, yeah, yeah, banal, predictable kind of things that you would you know you would imagine he would be saying if he didn't think about it too creatively well what did i say to you today steve when we were talking about it earlier i'm like you know first of all the guy was locked in for 20 years i don't think that someone could be saying well, exactly that's what, exactly what i seem, think i don't think he would be you know, coherent too calm. he would not be coherent i'm so happy you know it's like i'm gonna go out and get ice cream and, yeah. no dude you'd be mumbling gibberish you know <laughs> who knows who knows how somebody would cope with that also um i, I think one, one of the other things that points to this being um I, I don't know that kind of increases the complexity of of the backstory is that uh this man's mother has been very active in his um in his life and in his uh medical diagnoses and it she's been lobbying very hard for doctors to help her son. Um, as and she's the one who brought in the, the facilitator. Right. It was the family who brought in the facilitator. And you can imagine, like, being a mother and this happens to your son and the doctors tell you, you know, that there's nothing they can do, that he's unreachable and you desperately want him to be there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like a lot of this just came from a mother just being sucked yeah. in by a very uh, compelling story that her son is still inside. So it's the, the very sad. The interesting thing is that it's absolutely possible that Dr. Larez is correct and that this guy is actually either minimally conscious or locked in. So far, I haven't seen anything to absolutely contradict that. And that the facilitated communication may just be this added thing on top of that that's distracting from the real case. I don't know. I asked Dr. Larez a couple of times, is there any objective clinical evidence of consciousness in this patient independent of the facilitated communication. And he, then he said, I, I, he hid behind patient confidentiality at that point and said, I don't want to. And he also said that he doesn't want to, again, question the patient's consciousness because it was already called into question once and, that, and he thinks that would be cruel. I think he's misguided. What yeah, I told I, I him was... I think the cruel thing is having a human behave like a puppet for a, an international audience. Exactly, which Absolutely. is exactly what I yes. said. Imagine the worst case scenario is that he is locked in 
that he fleetingly was you know Trump was was uh, making some contact. I said that I think he was able to move his toe. Was really the only thing that he yeah could move. yes no Captain Pike type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Which is like the best that we can get from locked in patients. Maybe with computer technology we can get get a little bit better than that. But and who knows what we can do in the future? But often it's just blink once for yes, twice for no kind of thing. We had him at that point, or maybe I, I don't, again I don't know have the direct information to know. And then the facilitator comes in and steals his ability to communicate again. Now he's right. laying there helplessly. If he is locked in, unable to communicate while some fraud communicates in his name to the world. That's the worst case scenario. And if you really care about this guy, we have to absolutely prove that that's not the case. And, and it almost <sighs> certainly is the case. Doubly tragic it if is. that was the case. Now, the other piece of information is that Dr. Larez says he did a PET scan on him and it showed normal brain activity. It's like, okay. That, that's nice. The brain is, is, is biologically functioning, but that doesn't really tell us that he's conscious. We, have to, we need some kind of clinical correlation. So that's suggestive, and that's why I believe he may be locked in and not really persistent vegetative, but, I, but we just don't know until we get more, more details. Very tragic, very complicated story, and the media, total failure. Every media outlet bought the story at face value, without picking up on the facilitated communication thing, even NPR, even reporters that usually do a good job. Aye, aye, aye. Now there's another wave of reporting starting to call it into question, including the Huffington Post. But I think they were a little Oops. bit late to that party. And that's only because that the, now the, the right, the political right, is using this as a case to argue against euthanasia. So, of course, now the left is... Is, is coming around to the, hey, maybe this is all bogus because th- they're afraid that the right is going to use it as a propaganda piece like, like with Terry Schiavo against, uh, against euthanasia. But the, the first mainstream media outlet to call into question the, the facts of this story was Arthur Kaplan – uh, for MSNBC. Now, Arthur Kaplan, is, is, he's clued in. He's a PhD. And, of course, the science blogging community was all over this from the get-go, right? I mean, yeah. which is now the typical media cycle with these kind of stories. Yeah. Credulous reporting, science bloggers correcting it all. Maybe you get a second wave back from the mainstream media once they pick up on the fact that, hmm, this isn't quite the original story that was being told. Uh, just like with the Desiree Dystonia case. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. Credulous oh, reporting yeah. from the mainstream media, science bloggers corrected it, although in that case, there was a dedicated ideological group who you know, was fighting back against the scientists. In this case, there may be the same thing with the, um, the Terry Schiavo contingent, the anti-euthanasia uh, right-to-lifers may, may also play that same role here. So we're kind of still in the middle of this. We still have to see how this fully plays itself out, but we are beginning to see the, uh, the second wave of media saying that, hey, this, maybe this is all facilitated communication, which is bogus. It's amazing that facilitated communication is still cropping up 20 years later after it's been debunked so many times. It really is a very pernicious, cruel yeah. lie, the whole facilitated communication thing. Yeah, but Steve, I can understand why that happens because even though you know it's out there and people like us are aware of it, you know, some... Somebody else's kid gets into an accident and they're put in a situation where they want so desperately to talk to them and it'll just keep reinventing yeah. itself over and over again. Yeah, I, I, I certainly understand the emotions of it, you know, but still a scientist looking at the video or, or even directly at the patient 
whose hand flying across that keyboard while he's barely looking at it, and he can't even move, perceptibly move that hand voluntarily, that's got to trigger something. I mean, come on, a little bit of common sense. That's just not possible. Absolutely. I mean, look at, look at, I'm looking at my keyboard right now. So this, this woman is supposed to be reading subtle cues from this poor guy, and, and she can discern that he means the K but not the J, which is about less than an inch apart. Yeah, Instantly, it too. To, I mean, that's it didn't crazy. appear to be a specialized keyboard at all. It looks like just a regular keyboard. I, yeah. I would think that the keys would need to be about five times bigger and widely, widely spaced for her to, z- to zero in on, on any And there would be some probing of- and some, you know, like back and forth. Is this what you mean? You know, rather than right. just boop, boop, zip, boop, zip, boop, zip, boop. Zip, I mean, zip. it was really just not possible. <laughs> she reminds me of a cold reader. And, well, we should note, though, that she probably isn't purposely trying to scam these people. I would imagine that she's probably thinking she's that deluded. this is... Yeah. That this is totally what the the man wants. I mean, I feel like that's normal. Uh, I don't know. That's communication. We'll, we'll never know. We could go either way. Whether she's con- yeah. conscious of what what she's doing is. People can b- make themselves believe so many bizarre things that it's it's clearly possible. But it's so hard to watch her zipping back and forth and and constructing you know sentences and paragraphs in her mind. What does she think? She's got a psychic connection to this guy, well, and she yeah, can read his mind, and that's how she's doing it? It's That's right. It would take us two minutes to debunk it that, would. sadly. But, but it, it, functionally, when you become self-deluded enough, it becomes indistinguishable from conscious fraud because the behaviors that you start to engage in, because you, quote-unquote, know that you're right, you start to do things that are basically the same thing that somebody would do who's consciously committing fraud. So it becomes irrelevant at, at some point, you know? Wait, here, and one other, I think another takeaway is yet another reason for scientists, serious scientists, to be very familiar with, with skeptical topics because you never know when, when some irrational yep. you know, phenomena is going to take over your little branch of science. And you've got to be aware, aware of these topics so that you can counteract it like, like, like this neurologist. Absolutely. He's clearly unaware of FC and he needs to be. That's exactly correct. The next news item is called… Climate Gate. I know you guys have all heard about this because we've gotten about a million emails about this. It's hot right now. It is. It's very, very interesting. <laughs> and um, getting hotter. And get, yeah, it is yeah, getting right. hotter. Uh, apparently, someone hacked into the servers of the Climate Research Unit in Britain, the CRU, and stole a lot of data, including uh, thousands of emails and internal documents. And then posted it on a website, I think, out of Russia. Climate change skeptics began poring over these emails and pulling out what they think is damning evidence of fraud. Can we not call them climate change skeptics? Deniers? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, depending on upon your perspective, they're either climate yeah. change skeptics or that's what they call themselves, or climate change deniers. Mm-hmm. But is yeah, what but their I, critics I think they're them. one of those groups that, that is co-opted the word skeptic yeah, I agree. And abused it. So well they're using it right, right, from their point of view they're Yeah, well from Holocaust skeptics point of view that's correct as well. I, I agree, although they do they, they're using skeptics with a C, so it's not quite as bad. <laughs> <laughs> the climate change denying community is having a collective orgasm over these emails. And it's it really is uh, quite a spectacle, although I think they are making more of a spectacle than them, of themselves than the emails are, because they're making really hysterical statements to the, to the tune of, this is the final nail in the coffin, 
of you know, of climate change. This Revealing is the, a vast conspiracy. Yeah, the worst scientific fraud in modern science. I mean, it's really ridiculous hyperbole. And when you read what the the worst things that they 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 could dredge up from these emails, it's it's really nothing. Um, there's a couple of things that are like, yeah, that that's embarrassing, but that's not smoking gun evidence that anything wrong actually happened. It's the kind of chatter that scientists would, you know, back and forth, that scientists would talk to each other when they think they're talking privately, especially in a controversial and heated subject area where they think that there are, they have, you know, uh, ideological enemies that are working against them. Now, th- it makes it seem like they're um, going against the spirit of, of transparency and, and openness and fairness, but only if you really you know, interpret it in a sinister way. I think you can also interpret it in, in a completely benign way, in which case it's, it's embarrassing at worst. So I'll give you an example where they write, um, here's one, one quote. Out of, uh, also, a lot of these are out of context, context so it's hard to know. Uh, we probably need to say more about this land warming since 1980 has been twice the ocean warming, and skeptics might claim that this proves that urban warming is real and important. So uh, do you see what I mean with that? They're trying to make it sound like that, okay, we're going to fudge the data to hide the truth from the skeptics. But what they're really saying is, you know, we have to say more about this. We have to explain, ex- explain this more thoroughly because because uh, otherwise the skeptics on the other side are going to exploit that and try to make a bogus argument. So that's the whole thing. You know, there's an obvious benign interpretation, but taken out of context, you can you can interpret it in a sinister way. And that's basically what they're all like. Um, oh, God. There are instances of, um, for instance, uh, the scientists encouraging others to sort of boycott and not publish in, um, in, in journals that publish papers by climate change deniers. Right. Um, but it's, it's hardly, that's hardly a vast conspiracy as opposed to what looks to me like a, a few scientists, you know, getting catty. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that's just, that's me. Well, here, this is how I interpret that. So there were a couple email exchanges about um, a particular journal that had published some uh, some articles that were favorable to the uh, global warming deniers or skeptics, right? And the, and then the, so now these the email in the emails they're they're chatting about this whole thing. And what they're saying is, I don't think that we should publish in that journal anymore, and I don't think we should reference it anymore. And and articles in that journal should no longer be considered legitimately peer reviewed, but. The context is what they what they were concerned was was that global warming deniers had taken over the editorial positions of that journal and were turning the journal into an ideological, you know, anti global warming paper journal, and that it was no longer objective and quality, and they had let some crap papers through as evidence for that. So I try to say so again. I think it's wrong, and in in retrospect, I think again they they as you as you say they they were getting catty. They certainly weren't being true to the spirit of sort of of open and and transparent science publishing. But I try to imagine evolutionary biologists talking about a journal where intelligent design proponents took over the editorial positions and were publishing pro-intelligent design articles. 
they they would absolutely be saying the exact same things. Right. That I would want to associate infil- myself yeah. with that journal. Yeah, that journal's infiltrated by ID proponents. It's no longer a legitimate peer-reviewed journal, so we're, we're, we're not going to treat it that way anymore. It's, it's exactly the same thing. And, of course, the ideas would make the same arguments. They see we're being discriminated against, and we can't get published in peer-reviewed journals because of this kind of discrimination. So, but they're, they're interpreting concerns over quality control and ideological infiltration with discrimination and, and being close. But it's tricky because once you have the scientific process subverted by an ideological group, you know, whether they're you know, intelligent design proponents or global warming deniers, then it, you get into this no-win scenario. You know, it's like they, they, they taint the whole process so that you either – if you take them seriously, then it, it, it elevates um, what may be substandard science to an inappropriate level. And if you don't take them seriously, then they accuse you of, of discriminating against them and of a, a vast conspiracy of silence. So it's really a no-win scenario. And I think that's what these guys really got caught up in. If that's the case, though, Steve, then why haven't they come out and explained that? They have. They, ha- they absolutely have. If you read, um, they are starting now to come out, and, and they, first of all, they absolutely deny that any um, that the CRU has manipulated any of the data or withheld any of the data or deleted it. Their data is in line with other data sets in the United States. So this, it's not as if this is the only data set on which the notion of global warming is based. Um, and then a lot of the things that have happened were, again, embarrassing, but, but ultimately not evidence that there's any actual scientific fraud going on. Like they talk about things like normalizing the curves. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that, we, that you know, scientists do. You know, you, you have to – of course you analyze and interpret the data and you, and, you, know, you, you try to get the curves to look good. Now there can be a fine line between that and sort of mas- what we call massaging the data, trying to make it say something it doesn't. Uh, it's often not a black and white situation and maybe they they skirted with the lines here i don't know it need i think what this is really now an issue of public confidence in this data and the and the analysis of it so i think it's going to have to be independently reanalyzed um in order in order for the world to have confidence in in it again and then you know six months from now we'll see what really was going on but but the cru guys are totally denying anything wrong happened and they have been explaining what's been going on and is there a website that they've been doing that on like one place you can go to because it's kind of scattered it's been scattered in articles best. yeah the bbc i think uh which we could link to has an article where they talk about it um i, yeah, I don't know of any one place where they're going point by point and explaining everything it's more quotes and articles so it's, it's still early in the in this scandal Do it, does an investigation warrant it here I think probably just in order to reassure everyone, because of the, I think of the, the media storm around this, it, we're going to need to to say, all right, now we're going to be hyper-transparent. We're going to put all the data up for reanalysis, look in every corner, make sure no, no one's hiding anything. Again, you have the global warming deniers. So this is now this is all the confirmation they ever needed that everything that they were uh, accusing over the last 20 years is true. And again, their their kind of ridiculous hyperbole that they're saying sort of supports that. I also think that this is a situation where there can certainly be perfectly legitimate minority opinions about what is happening and how to project into the future with, with climate change. And those perfectly legitimate scientific but minority opinions get caught up in the denialism and it, it sort of taints the whole process. You know, I think like, I... I, it's always my position that, even though I think they're probably usually wrong, 
having minority opinions in science is very useful. It keeps the whole process honest, you know. Right. Um, and but if if that minority opinion gets turned into an anti-scientific ideological political agenda, the accusation is that there are those who are their their job is to forestall any policies based upon climate change by just sowing a doubt and confusion, right? And it sort of harkens back to the original denialism campaign, which was the tobacco industry, right? They're the ones who kind of wrote the book on how to sow fear and confusion, and that's sort of their stock and trade. And to, to, to make it seem like the science about the link between smoking and cancer wasn't as solid as it was. Uh, so you, when you have that kind of doubt campaign going on in order to forestall policies based upon good science... That's what generates this fear, this culture of, of suspicion and fear, and then that's where it's a short trip from trying to prevent the deniers from distorting the process to maybe censoring legitimate minority opinions. But it's damn tricky. Oh, there's so much, yeah, so much more we can I know, go on. I know. We'll, see how, we'll just have to see how, see how it plays yeah. out. I know, I know. One last really quick news item. You guys have all heard of the Crocoduck? Yes, Kirk Cameron, Kirk Cameron uh, drew a picture of it ridiculous once. Right? Half duck, yeah. half crocodile that he thinks. I mean, who? Yeah. If you know, this is crazy. I mean, you know, if Darwin's theory were real, we'd have things like right. a crocodile. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, you know, his picture of a crocodile was like literally a half of a little. Ch- it was like a sideshow, and thing. half like half of a yeah, half of a <laughs> crocodile, yeah. a chicken, but With the body of a rabbit. Ironically, <laughs> paleontologists have discovered. What they're calling the duck croc. Now, why they didn't call it the croc so duck, I'll never off. know. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, don't they? So, and that, aren't they up to speed on modern creationism? Crazy. Anatosuchus minor. It's a one of five species of ancient crocodilians that has some really interesting features. This one has, you know, its its mouth. It's basically flattened out and is reminiscent of the shape of like a duck's bill. It's not really a duck's bill, of course. It's, it's still a crocodile's jaws, but it has a duck-billed shape to it. There's also other really cool ones, like the the uh, dog croc, which like has really long foreign hind legs and can run almost like a mammal. It's an like agile galloper, they call it. God, could you imagine seeing yeah, that? Yeah, can you imagine seeing yeah. a crocodile standing up three, four feet above the ground on long legs and then galloping towards you? Wow. Imagine if you came over whimpering and you wanted <laughs> doggy bones, you know? Well, Steve, a lot of these new dis- newly discovered crocs uh, walked upright yeah. with their with their arms and legs wow. under the body. Like, imagine a typical crocodile; they're swept out to the side, yeah. and with you know with their belly rubbing on the ground. These, these were different, or some most of them were. Yeah, more like a dinosaur with their with yeah. their legs underneath, and uh, yeah, really scary looking, but cool. So basically, they just found a, a big batch of different. This is a, a side shoot of the crocodile family that you know lived millions of years ago that developed these features. Uh, you know, really, really neat. It really stinks that we'll never see these things in flesh and blood unless there's that cloak sat- alien satellite yeah. that's taping for the past but the, few but hundred million years. The artist's conceptions are cool, though. Yeah. They didn't get the name right, though. I mean, they should have called it a snap quack or something. You know, yeah. Something <laughs> Let's do one email this week. This one comes from Dave Roberts from Seoul, and he writes, 
Dear Skeptics, thanks for the great show. I'm working my way through the old episodes, and I'm learning plenty on the way. Good times. Thanks. You are literally amazing. So my question today is about people speaking languages that they never knowingly encountered before. I used to be a church-going Christian, and I came across people speaking in tongues quite frequently. I believed it for a while, but when I was taught how to do it, just start talking and God will give you the words honest, I became skeptical. I was then told that even if nobody else understands what you are saying, God does. This was at odds with my understanding of tongues through reading the Bible, and I dismissed it as complete bollocks, quickly followed by the rest of my Christian beliefs. I've recently been in touch with a guy who is utterly convinced, at least he seems to be, that he had a past life as a Vietnamese man, and the evidence for this is his regression therapy. He claims that he spoke fluent Vietnamese during the therapy and that this was recorded and the recording was verified as a genuine was verified as genuine by an expert. He has the tapes, but hasn't listened to them in years because they are too traumatic, apparently. I have no reason to suspect the guy's lying, but he is definitely misguided, right? I mean, this is complete fiction. It must be. If it were true, I'd be very grateful if you could discuss this topic at some point or at least reply with some kind of explanation. Many thanks. Well, speaking in tongues. Uh, have you guys ever seen anybody do it? Of course. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, Absolutely. Before we get on to his friend with the past life, uh, just a quick thing about the speaking in tongues. He says that, uh, you know, he became skeptical when it didn't really work for him. But just a quick point that I was at Skepticon in Missouri this past weekend um, with Dan Barker, among other people. Um, Dan Barker runs Freedom from Religion Foundation. And he used to be a, um, a preacher and he used to speak in tongues quite often. And he spoke a bit about how powerful it was for him and how he really felt as though there was this presence with him and uh, and it was almost like an otherworldly experience that he can still do it even though he doesn't actually believe in anything like that anymore. Um, but he can still go there if, if he really tries. So it actually is quite a transformative experience for some people, mm -hmm. apparently. Well, I've seen uh, people speak in tongues many times and um, I find it kind of disturbing. Yeah, to be honest with you, it's, oh, yeah, it's really, definitely. really a, a weird experience. Not, not to be actually doing it, but to just listen to people, and it's, it's odd how many different people that I've heard do it, and how different each of them sounds. It's kind of like they have their own, their own thing going on. But yeah, which is interesting, right? I mean, if if it were truly coming from outside, then the character of the speech shouldn't have anything to do with the person themselves. But you can clearly see that some people are better at it than others. Yeah. They're more talented at doing it. It's or clearly practiced. a talent, yep. something that they're doing themselves. So Dave yeah. mentioned that he had a guy that uh, was, in, was in therapy and he was able to speak you know, a fluent language that wasn't his native language. And that's actually called xenoglossy. Mm-hmm. Cool. It's defined as the alleged speaking or writing in a language entirely unknown to the speaker. But that that language, in xenoglossy, it's a real language. It's not something that, that's right. made up. Where uh, speaking in tongues, the, the actual word for that is glossolalia. Glossolalia, right. Glossolalia. That's speaking in a fluent vocalization of speech-like syllables... And uh, very less commonly, it could be also for writing as well. Although Dave is right in that in the in the, the Bible, in the New Testament, when the uh, the disciples went out to preach the word, they were able to preach to people of other lands because God gave them the ability to speak in tongues, to speak the foreign language, right? So that that uh, that concept in Christianity comes from the ability to preach 
you know, the word of the Bible by speaking someone else's language, not speaking gibberish that only God can understand. That's a modern invention in order to explain away why people who are allegedly speaking in tongues are actually speaking gibberish. Yeah, that that original quote comes from the, uh, the book of Acts in the Bible. And yeah, you're right, Steve. It actually means uh, those those present spoke in this like with other tongues as it's defined. And, and the idea was that everybody that was there could understand what was being said. And it was, it was said th- that they were hearing it in their own language. So it is yeah. absolutely different than, than what's the phenomenon that happens today. But um, I have some pretty interesting information on this. When I was doing research on this, I'd known quite a bit. I found I already knew quite a bit about it, but I, went, I really enjoyed reading the history about it. And, and I didn't realize that there were many, many other cultures and religions that, that spoke in tongues that predate you know, even Christianity or, or Pentecostal uh, faith-based religions. Let me read a few things to you. One scientist did some research on glossolalia, and uh, he was a professor of anthropology and linguistics at the University of Toronto. It's William Samarin. And he published an assessment of it, and he studied for five years glossolalia in multiple different Christian-based groups in Italy, in Holland, Jamaica, Canada, and the USA. This is actually a quote from a Joe Nickel book. I'm not sure if this is Joe or if this is exactly what uh, Samarin said, but this is what was written in Joe's book. Glossolalia consists of strings of meaningless syllables made up of sounds taken from those familiar to the speaker and put together more or less haphazardly. Glossolalia is language-like because the speaker unconsciously wants it to be language-like. Yet, in spite of superficial similarities, it's fundamentally not a language. Right. It's what you would do if you were faking, yep. talking in a foreignish sounding language. And, and, but also, people will use the this, this syllables, the phonemes that are native to their own language. They will unconsciously yes. make mm-hmm. it sound like the language that they're familiar with. Again, not something that's truly foreign or alien. So again, more evidence that it's an internal phenomenon, not an external phenomenon. So from a neur- neuroscientifically speaking, and I'm sure you, you must know some of this stuff, there was a study done in 2000, 2006. The brains of a group of individuals were, were scanned while they were actually speaking in tongues. So they, they found that activity in the language centers of the brain decreased while activity in the emotional centers of the brain increased. So there was no change in any language area suggesting that glossolalia is not associated with usual language brain function. So it actually operates outside of the language center of the brain. Mm-hmm. And there's also evidence that while speaking in tongues, people experience a sharp decrease in frontal lobe function, and that's the area of the brain that enables reason and self-control. There is also increased activity in the parietal region of the brain, which takes sensory information and tries to create a sense of self-relating to the world. So Rebecca stated before that there was some type of um, like state of mind that, that someone might slip into when they do this, and I, I did read on several different places on the web that people reported feeling like, you know, I wouldn't say euphoria, but some people did. And I, I watched some videos too where people were, were describing it that way. But for the most part, it's a pleasing sensation, which I found very interesting. The only other point I want to make on this topic, just to answer one of Dave's specific questions, like if you have somebody who claims to speak fluent Vietnamese while they're in hypnosis or being regressed, the bottom line is there's no evidence for that, right? No, There's no smoking gun evidence for somebody doing that. There's always the claim of the evidence, but not the evidence itself. And you know the, the cases that I've seen, um, 
it's usually like the, like in this case, it says that it was verified by an expert. You mean somebody fluent in Vietnamese? It wouldn't take any kind of an expert, just somebody who speaks a language. What is what is being said? You know, but what they do is they get somebody who like is some kind of an expert, and then they say, yeah, there's elements in there that sound like Vietnamese. You know what I mean? They kind of make a forced match, but it's not really speaking Vietnamese. If you apply Occam's razor to that guy's claim that he was spe- fluently speaking another language, it's still more likely that he just memorized the other language instead of him, you know, through regression therapy, actually being able to speak it through an unknown means. So even yeah. if he did produce the tapes and even if those tapes were studied, it's still most likely that it's BS. Yeah, it would have to be reproducible in some way where other easier explanations were ruled out. But just someone speaking Vietnamese on a tape is not really that much in the way of evidence. And you'd also have to prove that the guy didn't speak it already. Like, you'd have to find proof that he didn't already know the language. Right, right, right. Now, there's a classic example that we could cite, and I just happen to have a recording of it here. I figured I'd just play it real quick for everyone. Is, 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 is that uh, absolutely necessary? What did he say? Yeah, he's afraid it is. Ah. Oh. What the fuck so, was that? There you go. That's a slight, small little example, little, small little taste Evan, of speaking th- in tongues. Evan, thanks for doing that because I completely forgot. I queued up a uh, a video I found on YouTube that has a woman speaking in tongues. And by total coincidence, it also has the farting preacher speaking in tongues. So check Whoa. this out. And we'll link to the video, but you should be able to hear it. In the name of Jesus, you be made whole by the power of God. Isn't that something called That's the farting preacher at the end there. Yeah. That's yeah, that's like baby talk. Let's go on to science or fiction. It's time for science or each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. Then I challenge my international panel of expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. And everyone can play along at home. Is everyone ready? Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's okay. do it. Oh, I'm ready. Here we go. Here we go. Item number one, a new extensive hospital survey finds that health computerization saves no money in either healthcare or administration. Item number two, scientists have discovered gamma ray bursts resulting from antimatter destruction in terrestrial lightning. And item number three, a comprehensive study finds that as much as 70% of the nutrients that support oceanic ecosystems comes from land-based food sources. All right, Evan, go first. All righty. The extensive hospital survey finding computer, that health computerization saves no money in either healthcare or administration. That doesn't surprise me. I'll come back to that. Number two was the gamma ray burst resulting from antimatter destruction in terrestrial lightning. Uh, that, that makes no sense to me. Discovered gamma ray bursts resulting from antimatter destruction. That part makes sense. Terrestrial lightning. That makes no sense. You know, lightning on Earth. That's all that Yes, means. I understand. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah, okay. All <laughs> I'm right. saying the concept <laughs> of a gamma ray burst uh, happening, you know. And then 70% of nutrients that support oceanic ecosystems come from land-based food sources. Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, well, stuff rolls downhill, right? And into the oceans. And, and that includes nutrients, amongst other things. So I think that one's plausible. 
Um, so we're back to gamma ray bursts or the hospital survey finding that... Uh, you see, I don't like either of these choices. I think they're both fiction. This isn't, uh, this isn't the one, Steve, where you have two fictions in one science, right? Not that I know of. As long as I have to make a choice... Oh, I'll go with uh, against the grain. I'll go against my my inclinations, and I'll say that the hospital survey one that one is fiction. And, okay, you know I, I'm sure there's a fascinating explanation as far as the gamma ray bursts go. Okay, Bob. <sighs> Got to say it this time, you bastard. <laughs> these these are tough. I came across really none of these. I can't imagine that computerization. It's not going to be, be saving money with healthcare administration unless you know if you um, if you factor in the the, co- the initial cost to tra- you know to convert and all that stuff I could I could potentially see that that initially you're you're really not having any savings um, so I could kind of rationalize that one the gamma ray burst antimatter what the hell does antimatter have to do with lightning hmm if it's coming from lightning then it would be the, all right. I don't know about that one. And 70% of – I can't imagine that 70%. That's a huge chunk of the nutrients supporting oceanic ecosystems coming from land-based um, – I mean, how many how, – how, 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 how many nutrients are coming you know, from, uh, from water from that's, just, that's getting from the land into uh, the oceans? 70. And, and human waste. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of human waste – Going into That's the oceans, but but seventy. Ah, oh, that one doesn't make sense either. I'll say the uh, the seventy percent nutrient one is off. That's fiction. Okay, Rebecca. I I find them all completely implausible because health computerization. I feel like that should be saving us money, and that's just referring to like records, right, being switched over to electronically, right, like your medical records. It's not necessarily limited to that. Does it also, I, I mean, it's so vague. Like, does it also refer to, like, those full body scans and stuff? No, it's not re- It's not referring to any, like, particular diagnostic tool or anything. It's information. Okay. It's all the stuff that hospitals do being computerized. Okay. Well, that seems stupid. That seems like that should be saving us money. Gamma ray bursts coming from lightning is terrifying, and I would rather believe that it's not true. And 70% of um, oceanic ecosystems getting a uh, stuff from land-based food sources. That's ridiculous. It is completely and utterly ridiculous. So it's a total crapshoot for me, and I'm really tired. So I'm going to go with the lightning one because, I mean, gamma ray first. Those things, like, take out planets, right? That was in Phil's book. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you're lined up correctly. That's horrible. That's not true. All right. So you guys are all spread out, Jay. Leading yeah. up to you. <laughs> okay, you almost like forgot me. Have I have I actually failed so many times I don't even get to play anymore? No, I'm saying, but right? get, getting to you, there, there's those three guys all chose different ones. So right, no wonderful. help to you. That's wonderful. Ready to, now? I'm going to say what I think. All right. Uh, first of all, the uh, the software not helping, ho- not saving hospitals money and everything. I totally, totally believe that. I mean, being a software engineer and seeing actually software that is used for big organizations like hospitals and everything. This stuff is amazingly complicated. and I, There isn't one that has come out that I've ever heard of that is so, so good that it actually you know, is far superior than everything else and saves an enormous amount of time. So I agree with that one. Uh, second one, scientists uh, discovered the gamma ray burst resulting from antimatter destruction and terrestrial lightning. 
Wow. That's very, really interesting. I I definitely didn't read anything about it, and I don't know much about it, so I I don't want to comment. Uh, The final one, though, comprehensive study, uh, says about 70% of the nutrients support oceanic ecosystems. When you first read through these, that was the one that really hit me as I just don't believe that. I don't think that that the 70% of the ocean's food comes from the land. I don't. I think that ecosystem is operating operating pretty well on its own. So I think that one's the fake. Okay. So I might as well take these in order. The first one, a new extensive hospital survey finds that health computerization saves no money in either health care or administration. Evan, I believe you thought this one was the fiction. Yeah. And this one is science. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Not helping. That's... Let's get rid of the computers and in healthcare. The, uh, this, of course, is a huge issue because uh, as you know, we are going through major health reform, uh, or at least reviewing the possibility, a lot of people are claiming that we should save billions of dollars by you know, moving forward the computerization of healthcare, and this new recent evaluation projects that it saves actually no money. Not in administrative costs and not in patient care costs. But that's not what, why you do it, though. You don't do it to save money. But There's so many other benefits. There are other benefits. This isn't the only benefit, but that is certainly has been claimed that it will, quote-unquote, save billions. This study, uh, published in the American Journal of Medicine, found that it, it's not saving. When they compared hospitals with different degrees of, of computerization and hospitals that went you know, computerized aspects of their operations in 2003, then you follow them up four years later in 2007, including they looked at the 100 most wired hospitals, the ones that had mostly implemented electronic medical records and, and, um, and systems. They found that there was no cost saving associated with that. So... I totally believe that working in the healthcare industry, there are, and there are different systems in place. There's a there's like inpatient and outpatient medical records. There's patient billing. There's patient booking, and there's also systems for, uh, for example, storing and viewing test results either in the laboratory or, or radiology reports, etc. I think we're at the point where we, we've essentially lateraled over from more of a, basically a paper-based system to an electronic-based uh, system without yet realizing significant uh, improvements in efficiency. But it puts us on the path where we may have increased efficiencies down the road. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Makes sense. But, and Jay's right. It's re- these are complicated systems. It's really hard to do well. From the, the end-user point of view, like a physician, and I'm reasonably computer savvy. What I find the big disconnect is it's hard to find people who are both programmers and clinicians who know how to connect the two things together, right? So you don't, you have physicians who don't really know how to express what they need or what or who know what a system can do for them, and you have programmers who don't know what the physicians need, and so you end up with systems which are a little bit too off the shelf. They're they're not they they don't find those optimal efficiencies that they can, and even when they're there. Even when the potential is there, it all comes down to the last person who's doing the implementation, the, 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 you know, those people. So there's so many steps along the way where the real benefits of a system could be lost because it just wasn't implemented optimally. So we're not there yet. You know, I, it's, I would never go back. I love writing my notes in electronic medical record system. I, I find it improves my personal efficiency, but I'm, uh, I'm one of the more savvy users. I, in fact, was responsible for designing the, uh, the program that we use, not, not the software, but the implementation of the software that we're currently using for my department. 
So if you're if you're a quote unquote super user, which is what we call people who you know the end users who are involved with the implementation, you can get a lot of efficiency out of it. But your rank and file person is just struggling to get through with it, and they're, and they're not really using it anywhere near optimal efficiency. So I think we're probably years away from the systems maturing enough to where there's enough efficiency gains that you could actually like get get by with fewer employees, right? Which is what I mean. A hospital would need to be able to fire people or eliminate positions in order to save money, right? Let's go on to the second one. Scientists have discovered gamma-ray bursts resulting from antimatter destruction in terrestrial lightning. Rebecca, you thought this one was the fiction? Yes. And this one is science. No! Groovy. Oh, wow. We're all going to die. Yeah. Hey! Gamma-ray bursts are coming. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> these weren't planet-buster gamma-ray bursts, but still, even if it's... A one gamma ray, you could say it's a gamma ray burst, but I guess. gamma ray burst? We're all going to die. Detectable by the Fermi Gamma, gamma Ray Space Telescope, which uh, is a gamma ray telescope looking for gamma ray bursts out there in the universe, and um, but managed mm-hmm. to find some from behind it right on Earth. Oh, this cool. is just like those love stories. Yeah, and it was correlated it's with so lightning under storms. Under your nose the whole time. And not just gamma ray bursts, but gamma ray emissions that have a particular energy that is produced by the decay of positrons annihilating with electrons. Cool. Are we all so going to die? <laughs> well, we haven't yet. So they were surprised and, and they, that, that they found these gamma rays coming from lightning strikes, basically, and they know it's coming from matter-antimatter annihilation, specifically positron-electron annihilation, but they don't have any idea why it's happening. They don't have any model of why the, elect- the lightning is producing really? these, these positrons. So it, right now it's just a, it's an anomaly they've observed, and they have to now try to figure out how to explain it. That's cool. Yeah. I, wonder if, I wonder if we can use this discovery to be, to be able to increase our production of antimatter because that's one of the Maybe. classic problems yeah. of antimatter engines is that you, we can't produce enough of it. You, know, you spend a yeah. billion, you know, millions of dollars in work all year, and look, I got, I got a thousand – Antiparticles. Anti, yeah. Antiparticles. So that's the big problem. And if they maybe if they could use this I, this techni- uh, technique to increase the production, yeah. that would be Who knows? great. Who knows what it will That'd lead be to. That would be great. Can we get to the, the last one? So one last point. So one of the ways they were able to isolate the gamma bursts to the lightning flashes is by correlating them with the Worldwide Lightning Location Network. Did you know we had a Worldwide Lightning Location Network? I'm a member. Is yeah. that right? <laughs> Hard carrying. What's, what's the network? They they can track when when and where lightning happens around the world. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. All right. So all of this means that a comprehensive study finds that as much as seventy percent of the nutrients that support oceanic ecosystems comes from land based food sources is complete fiction. Yeah. Bobby uh-huh. J got that See, one Bob, correct. Yeah, we knew. Yeah. However, <laughs> that was the wackiest of the guess. wacky. That's not as wacky as you might think, though. There was a recent study. That showed that fifty. Study schmuddy, hey, Bob and I won. Hey, that fifty percent of the of the carbon, you know, as a marker for nutrients, came from terrestrial sources. Um, however, that conclusion was not generally accepted by um, oceanographers and people who study the you know oceanic ecosystems. They and. Those researchers now have done their own analysis. This is, for example, Michael Brett, a UW professor of civil and environmental engineering, who said that doesn't make any sense that uh, the kind of nutrients that you get from land-based sources like trees is just different than what fish really need. And uh, he said that was really just at odds with their own research. 
So they looked into it a little bit further, and they found that that fish and, and sea creatures do much better if you feed them algae than if you feed them leaves and land-based sources of food. And that they, they need, for example, the omega-3 fatty acids, which you just don't get from trees. Um, so just they don't they're not buying the 50% figure because it doesn't it doesn't jibe with what they have been studying in terms of the kind of nutrients that aquatic creatures need. Uh, so but there was that one group that that came up with the 50% figure. I had to exaggerate that in order to make sure it was clearly fiction. Uh, but even the 50% figure is not being generally accepted. Right. Okay. But that, I still found that surprising though that there is this belief. That that actually it's, it's pretty generally accepted that a lot of stuff from the land gets washed into the ocean, and that's a significant food source for the ecosystem in the ocean. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Remember we, yeah. talk, we talked was it one or two weeks ago about the crabs that eat yeah, the yeah. sunken trees. The but those wood. are the deep. The, the the bit there was that there was deep ocean that there was not just on the shore. So congratulations, Bob and Jay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's it pretty easy, you know, right? Yeah. Bob? <laughs> you know, you guys are so lucky yeah. that I moved to England, yeah. and it's two in the morning. Because otherwise, I would totally be getting these right. Don't blame it on the time zone. It's it, Sid's not leaving you alone. I think, Everybody knows it. I think. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I believe up next we have who's that noisy. Thanks to Brian Quinn for that bit of auto-tuning the SGU. Thanks, Brian. Evan, can you please play Who's That Noisy from last week? Absolutely. Let me just find the play button. Oh, there it is. His soul. Wasn't that Frodo? Yeah, you'd think. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like Frodo. <laughs> <laughs> That's because it's the same actor, Elijah Wood, what, portraying what the mean? character Nine from the movie of the same title. Nine. Nine, Yabo. <laughs> Thought it was a German flick. Did it, and who got that correct, Evan? Ah, so the person who got that correct was Belgarath from the message boards. I think he's gotten some of these before as well. Is that right? Yeah. It's one of those trigger-happy listeners who's yeah. wait, waiting by the computer and downloads it and listens to the end. Exactly. So, well done, Belgarath. He actually, he actually <laughs> okay. first, he first uh, guessed District 9. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then he that. corrected, oh, wait. No, no, no I, I mean 9. <laughs> I meant 9. 
Plan nine from outer space. <laughs> the ninth gate. Wait. The uh, nine samurai. <laughs> <laughs> nine little Indians. Nine angry oh, men. And of course, um, Friday the 13th, part nine. Part nine, right. <laughs> to, uh, Evan, what do you got for this week? <laughs> All right. All right. This week is not a movie clip, I assure you. It is something much less identifiable. So crank up your speakers or your headphones and give a listen. Very interesting, Evan. All right. So, yeah, there you have it. Good luck, everyone. Jay. Don't bother me. What's what's the quote for this week? All uh, right. I have a, a quote that was sent in by Lance Hughes from Athens, Alabama. He uh, very tirelessly helped me find a quote for the show tonight. And I wanted to thank him by saying, Lance Hughes! Because that's what he wanted, so I said it. Thanks, Lance. Uh, this is a quote, so here we go. From Carl Sagan. Who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. Carl Sagan! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's always good for a quote. Oh, absolutely. Always. Now, I believe, in addition to being Thanksgiving, tomorrow, meaning Thursday the 26th, November 26th, there's some other significance to that date. There is, there's... Uh, you know, it's funny. I woke up this morning and I just felt like there was something I'm forgetting. And I didn't remember it until very recently. I just remembered. And that is? It happens to be Mike LaSalle's birthday. Happy birthday, Mike. Hey, Mike. Happy birthday, wow, Mike. Oh, Mike. I didn't know. I would, I'd have, I'd have said up. something, like on the show or something. Oh, wait, I did. Mike, <laughs> we love you. Mike is absolutely our favorite Absolute favorite uh, of all people of all time. Yes, How about that. Absolutely. Started out as our number one fan, but now he really is part of the team. He post produces Five by Five for us as an occasional guest on Five by Five. He does a lot of our website management and is just an all around help. So he's actually an official member of the New England Skeptical Society and a hardworking member of the team. And also a very very close friend of ours. Of course, absolutely. He's such a good guy. I mean, he's just a person. And far he as is people bald, go, though. He's... There is that. Oh, I well, wait, wait, we Steve, we happily no, overlook his baldness and his Canadianness. Right, you just have to put sunglasses on. You know. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to understand with that accent. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, it is funny how sometimes he's completely unaware of you know um, American cultural things that we were we're talking about, and he's like he has no idea <laughs> because he doesn't live in this country. He's like, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Surely. Steve. It was fucking Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. everyone. Yeah. Hey, you, you know what's coming up soon, too? No. It's actually the end of November. It's only a few more shows until we do our year-end wrap-up. Oh, my oh, God. Right. Oh, my right. goodness. So we have we to start putting that? That, putting that together. And this is the time when we need our listeners to send us in their recommendations for the best guest of the year, best news item, the worst pseudoscientist of the year, all the superlatives, anything you could think yeah. of. Favorite quotes, everything. Yeah, to reminisce Favorite about noisy. SGU over 2009. Yep. Send it to us uh, on email, and uh, we'll put it all together for the end-of-the-year wrap-up show. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Mm-hmm. 
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 